Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, September 26th, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, from 1990 to 1994, I worked on my master's degree at Drew Theological School in Madison, New Jersey. The university is nicknamed the University in the Forest, and it's a beautiful green campus, a delight to live on. In fact, when uh, I started telling people I was going to go to seminary in New Jersey, everybody said, oh, it's horrible, you'll hate it, it's just all concrete. Nope, we had an amazing time in the forest. And Despite the rural setting, it was less also, also less than an hour away from downtown New York City. So if we wanted to go in and uh, be with lots of people we could, including take in a Broadway show. And Jody and I did that a number of times during the four years that I was going to school at Drew. Now, prior to graduating, Jody and I decided to go take one last trip into the city to see uh, a Broadway show, and we saw the revival of Damn Yankees. And the headliner was B.B. Newworth uh, from Cheers fame. You may remember her as Lilith, uh, Kelsey Grammer's perplexing love interest. And it was a fabulous production. I'm also a huge sports fan, so combined Broadway and baseball, it was, it was a uh, no-brainer for me. And uh, six months later, it, it became very well-known because they added Jerry Lewis as the, to the cast of uh, Mephistopheles. Anyway, one of the traditions on Broadway and in London's West End is some people like to wait outside the theater's stage door following the production, long after the show has ended, in hopes to see some of the stars of the show come on out as they get into their limos or however they're getting you know, home to where they live. So Jody and I decided, well, it's our last time in, in Broadway. Maybe let's, let's stay and see, see who comes out. Maybe we could see B.B. Newworth. Um, and it's amazing because there's dozens and dozens of people that wait there, and some of them have uh, items they want signed, including the, the playbill. We were quite a few rows back. Um, we didn't get to see B.B. Newworth. We did get to see some of the cast members that came out. Um, but I want you to, to remember this scene, waiting outside the stage door uh, for someone famous to come out. I'm going to appeal to that a little bit later, refer back to that in my message. Well, welcome to the third and final week in this very short sermon series entitled Wrestling with Doubt. And we've been looking at the uh, intersection of faith and doubt and how surprisingly there seems to be a lot of room for doubt, more than we might have thought when it comes to the subject of faith. Today we conclude the series by looking at the doubt that arises when we can't seem to hear God's voice, when God seems silent. I mean, does, does faith require that we have absolutely no doubts, that we must be certain about everything that we believe. Theologian and author, theologian and author Frederick Buechner once said, almost nothing that makes any real difference can be proved. Author Alistair McGrath in his book Doubting puts it this way, deep within all of us lies a longing for absolute security, to be able to know with absolute certainty. But frankly, the sort of things that you can know with absolute certainty, well, they're actually not that important. Dr. Brene Brown, a licensed social worker and world-renowned author in her best-selling book, The Gifts of Imperfection, says this about faith. 
Faith is a place of mystery where we find the courage to believe in what we cannot see and the strength to let go of our fear of uncertainty. She even references Anne Lamott's 2006 book, Plan B, Further further Thoughts on Faith. And Anne has a great um, uh, statement that's very thought-provoking when it comes to this topic. She says, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Hmm. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Now, wouldn't it be much easier if God just decided to, uh, to tell us everything we needed to know, right? Here's what you need to believe and, and believe it. I mean, we would absolutely, positively never have any doubts if we directly heard God's audible voice telling us this. I mean, where are our burning bush experiences? Where are our uh, Red Sea crossings? I mean, has anybody ever wondered why it seems like today God doesn't speak as clearly as God seems to have during the scripture times? And that why, despite our prayers and searching sometimes, God seems silent? Well, in the book of Amos, chapter 8, God warns the people that this is going to happen. Amos 8, 11 and 12 says this. The time is surely coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, But not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Hadn't really ever thought about having a famine of God's word, of hearing insight and direction from God. In his book, Let Me Tell You a Story, Tony Campolo mentions a story from the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And it's a story, a simple story, about a boy trying to learn arithmetic. The teacher gives him a book full of problems to solve, and in the back of the book, as many of us who have ever had a math class know, there are answers to the math problems. But the teacher insists that the boy never look at the answers until he's done the work to solve the problems first. He needs to work it out for himself. Well, the boy does his homework, but being human, he decides to look in the back first. And he gets the answers beforehand. He finds it, it's much easier if I know what the answer is, and then I can figure out how to work the problems that way. Kierkegaard points out that while it is quite possible for the boy to get good grades this way, He'll never really learn to master mathematics. And as difficult as it may be to prove, the only way to become a mathematician is to struggle with the problems yourself, not by getting someone else's answers, even if the answers are the right ones. Campolo concludes by saying this, it's obvious that on life's journey we're faced with problems and sometimes we wonder why Jesus doesn't just spell out the answers so that we know exactly what to do. According to Kierkegaard, God doesn't give us the answers because he wants us he wants to force us to work out the problems for ourselves. That it's only by struggling with the problems as they present themselves day in and day out that we can develop into the kinds of mature people that God wants us to be. Last week, I introduced you to a little book by Peter Rollins of modern-day parables entitled The Orthodox Heretic and Other Impossible Tales. Well, I found another one for us today, but be forewarned, they are quite challenging. He says this, 
There once was a rich and kindly father who lived with his two sons in a lavish mansion. But late one evening, in the very dead of the night, the father packed up a few small items and left quietly. The first son awoke the next day, and upon discovering his father's disappearance, continued with his chores religiously. Days passed into months, and these months gradually dissolved into years, and through toil and rationalization, the son successfully repressed the haunting fact that his father had indeed abandoned them. Instead of facing the pain, he allowed the reality of the situation to fester silently in the depth of his being. The other son, however, refused to face up to the pain of his father's, uh, also refused to face up to the pain of his father's midnight exodus. In confusion and fear, he withdrew his share of his father's, the father's inheritance, and he ran away, losing himself in worldly distractions of all kinds. But he found that no matter where he traveled, he could not escape this sorrow in his heart. And no matter what activity he engaged in, the amnesia it offered was not enough to cloud the memory of his father's disappearance. In addition to this, he soon found himself utterly destitute and poor. And after only a few years, he found himself without money or or friends, working on a pig farm where he would would have to share the scraps uh, that he fed to the animals in order to supplement his diet. After many months of this pitiful existence, he decided to face up to his father's disappearance once and for all and return home. And when he finally reached the great mansion, he found his brother still caring for the property, still toiling on the land, still suppressing the memory of his father's exodus. The brother who had never left held resentment in his heart against the one who had squandered his inheritance only to return empty-handed. However, the other brother paid no heed to this animosity for his gaze was still set on a deeper concern. Each day, he would ready a calf for slaughter and lay out his father's favorite cloak in preparation for the great feast of celebration when his father would return. Once he had done this, he would sit by the entrance to the mansion and passionately wait to see his father in the distance. He waits still to this very day, yearning for the homecoming of the prodigal father with longing and forgiveness in his heart. Now, Rollins says this parable was birthed while he was attending a Quaker worship service. Now, if you're not familiar with the Quakers, they have no ordained clergy. When they gather for weekly worship, they sit in a room together in silence, and they wait for someone to receive a word or insight from the Lord, then that person shares it with the community, and then they wait in silence again for another word or insight or scripture to come to mind, and then they share that, and then they wait again. Rollins said this parable for him became a personal reflection on the theme of the divine withdrawal. As, how many, as many theologians have pointed out over the centuries, that God, by God's very nature, always transcends our grasp. And in, and in some ways, God will always be experienced as withdrawn from our complete understanding and experience. And so, we're going back to Broadway now, we wait outside the stage door of life, waiting hoping, longing to catch a glimpse of God, and sometimes in our journeys it feels like God never comes out that stage door. 
Barbara Brown Taylor, in her wonderful book, When God is Silent, comments on the Latin phrase, Hester Panim, or the hiding of the face. It's an expression that's used more than 30 times in the Old Testament, uh, and it always refers to God, Hester Panim. Prophets, priests, kings, all alike have experienced Hester Panim, the, the hidden face of God. She even mentions Hebrew scholar Richard Elliot Friedman's book, The Disappearance of God. And in his book, she says, Friedman chronicles what he calls the divine recession in the Old Testament. And, and I found it fascinating. And so I'm going to give you quite a few details from this. And he works his way from Gen Genesis to the Minor Prophets. And Friedman uh, paints a portrait of God who fades as the story moves on. So, stick with me here. Divine features that were distinct at the very beginning of, of the Bible, of the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, they begin to grow blurry as the story continues, as it seems like God is withdrawing from humankind. Stepping back from human beings, why? So now humanity has the opportunity to step forward into their own faith. So, after the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, Friedman says God was never again made visible to all of humankind, according to Scripture. The people of Israel were uh, extended special privileges that lasted uh, through the 40 years of being in the wilderness with God. But once Moses saw God's backside on Mount Sinai in Exodus 33, that period of visible and audible encounters with God, according to Scripture, came to an end. After the delivery of the Ten Commandments, God never directly spoke to the people as a whole again. Moses, the mediator, wore a veil. The Ark of the Covenant was placed inside a tent. When Moses died, there was no one left on earth who had actually laid eyes on God. And in fact, the very last person who Scripture says was uh, to have seen uh, God has been revealed to them, that was Samuel, uh, while he was a young child at the, in the temple in Shiloh, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21. The last person to whom God was said to have appeared to was Solomon and, uh, at, uh, at Gibeon. And again, this was when the king had finished building the temple in Jerusalem, 1 Kings, uh, or 2, 2 Kings chapter 3. After that, the verb is retired in reference to God. It never says that God appeared to anyone else in the Hebrew Scriptures. So, uh, the people have prophets and kings and temples to preoccupy them. Why would they need God? Well, the last public miracle recorded in the Hebrew Bible was the uh, spectacle atop Mount Carmel with Elijah the prophet and the uh, priests of Baal, 1 Kings chapter 18. After that, God assumed a much lower profile, working miracles with smaller and smaller audiences. Even angels got scarce. Friedman says, there's no evidence that they tended to do anyone in the Old Testament after the prophet Elijah. So gradually, the prophetic experience of God became one of visions and dreams, not direct encounters with the holy. From Hezekiah on, the world described in the Hebrew Bible was one in which God had largely stepped back or retired, leaving humans to interact with other humans. The world was no longer a place where seas were parted and snakes talked, but it was one in which the human relationship with the divine was largely a matter, are you ready, of personal belief. 
This is the world into which Jesus was born. The clearest revelation of God's presence on earth since God came down to the mount at Sinai and the Ten Commandments. In Jesus, God was once again made both audible and visible. As Fred Craddock has said, the voice of God in Jesus was not a shout. In him, the revelation of God comes to us as a whisper. In order to catch it, we must hush, lean forward, and trust that what we hear is indeed the voice of God. Okay, but why would God do this? Why would God step back and not give us God's voice? Well, that's a great question. Once again, we need to go back to Scripture, to the Old Testament, to that very same uh, Mount Sinai when God came down with the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, the very last instance when God addressed the people as a whole, and we have this, verses 18 and 19. When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Friedman suggests it's at our own request as human beings that God never spoke to all humanity again. In time... Books, clergy, institutions of worship, they would become substitutes for the presence of the living God, and most people would be just fine with that substitution. Blaise Pascal once wrote, every religion which does not affirm that God is hidden is not true. Okay, right, but we didn't ask for that. That was not us. That was the people in the Old Testament, right? Okay, yeah, I get that. But haven't you, as a person of faith, no matter how long or short you've been walking with Jesus, haven't you had those moments where it seemed like God was silent? Times that, as people over the centuries have referred to as the dark night of the soul, or wilderness moments, spiritual famines in our lives, with times when we felt that we were lost and we're just wandering aimlessly and we were hoping and looking and praying for some direction from God but it didn't seem to come. Just as physical hunger intensifies when we don't have food, so does spiritual hunger intensify when God seems absent. I'm not saying God is absent, but when we can't perceive God in our lives. Classic writer Ernest Hemingway in his book, The Old Man and the Sea, describes what it's like to be a fish on the other end of a fishing line. He says this, the punishment of the hook, when you first get snared, oh, that's nothing. It's the punishment of hunger, and that as a fish, he is against something that he does not comprehend. That is everything. Author Ken Geyer, in his wonderful book, Windows of the Soul, remarks that it's in these prolonged periods of God's absence that we learn like Jesus did in his wilderness experience that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. One of my favorite passages in the Hebrew Scriptures is, it comes at the very end of the Old Testament, and it's, it's not one that you find on a lot of t-shirts and posters. Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. And it addresses these wilderness moments, those times that tend to draw us towards doubt. 
Habakkuk says, though the fig tree does not blossom and there are no fruit on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. From the time Agnes was a young girl, she believed. I mean, not just believed, she was, as we say, on fire for the Lord. I mean, she wanted to do great things for God. She said she wanted to, quote, love Jesus as he has never been loved before. She knew that Jesus was with her, and she had this undeniable sense of him calling her to be in relationship and mission for the kingdom of God. She wrote in her journal, my soul is at present is in perfect peace and joy. She experienced a union with God that was so deep and continual that it was to her like a rapture. So, as a young woman, she left home, she became a missionary, she gave God everything, and then she says, God left her. At least that's how it felt to her. Where is my faith, she wondered. Even deep down, she wrote, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain. I have no faith. She decided to pray Quote, I utter words of community prayers and I try my utmost to get out of every word the sweetness it has to give, but my prayer of union is not there any longer, so I no longer pray. On the outside, she worked, she served, she smiled, but she spoke of her smile as a mask, as a cloak that covered everything. The inner darkness and dryness and pain over the absence of God continued on year after year with only one brief respite over the course of five decades, 50 years. Such was the secret pain of Agnes, who was known to the world as Mother Teresa. These letters were not revealed until after her death, but they revealed this inner torment that was a secret during her life, and she wanted them, the letters, to be destroyed, but a strange thing happened. Her willingness to persist in the faith of such agonizing doubts, it's brought comfort and strength to people that an inner life of ease and certainty may never have, if that had been her journey. All her life, Mother Teresa was a servant to the poor. In her anguish, she has become a missionary to many of us who struggle and question and doubt. We may not be able to understand the mysterious ways of God, but the gift that we do have, friends, is the, the gift of Jesus. And in Jesus, the silent God found a voice. In Jesus, God came to us in human form. And yet, as Barbara Brown Taylor comments, that even when Jesus spoke, he created silence. Right? Many of his sayings were so cryptic that no response was possible. They had to keep thinking about it and ruminating on it. Others were so offended by what he had to say that they didn't want to respond. Jesus was a genius storyteller with a gift for surprise endings that left people shaking their heads like, wait, what? What did we just hear? He almost never wrapped things up in a neat bow and package for people. He left the problems in. Why? Well, maybe he was the ultimate uh, math teacher. 
so that we could actually work it out ourselves, that we could experience the silence for ourselves. And in the silence surrounding his death, Jesus became the best possible companion for those whose prayers have ever gone seemingly unanswered. For those who would give anything just to hear God call them by name. Jesus wanted that too, but he didn't get it. What he got instead was a fathomless silence in which he cried out. And while dying on the painful cross, Jesus clung to the words of Scripture saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's there in the Gospels, but it has its roots back in the Hebrew Scriptures. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Friends, if Jesus could pray that prayer, if Jesus could cite that psalm, of all the psalms he could have brought up while he was on the cross, if he could lift up that one, then maybe it's okay that we do it as well? Maybe instead of seeking to rid ourselves of God's silence, instead of thinking it as a vacuum that needs to be filled, maybe, maybe we can approach it as a mystery that we can enter into. Maybe God hides his face from time to time in our lives to increase our sense of loss until we are so hungry and lonely for God that we change whatever it is we're doing or not doing and do something about it. Maybe faith doesn't require that we have to be absolutely 100% positive about everything and certain about all. But instead, maybe we can simply rest in the knowledge that God is still God, that we are God's beloved, and that whether we can recognize God's presence in our life or not, that God is here, God is everywhere, God is involved deeply in our lives, and we can take comfort that we stand in the same tradition as Jesus and Mother Teresa. And hundreds of thousands of millions of other people that have had those wilderness moments. In the meantime, God might just be teaching us something through the mystery of this silence, that in this silence, we experience God in a new way. And we discover that, huh, what do you know, we, we can work out these math problems ourselves. We don't have to turn to the back of the book, and that our connection to God can grow deeper than we ever thought possible. Don't give up. Hold on. Trust that God is there even when you can't sense it or feel it. And be ready for walking into an even deeper relationship with God. May it be so for all of us. Amen.